0: Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton.
1: I'm Shirin Hamza.
0: This episode is part of our series in Continuity and Transformation in Islamic Law, curated by Hadi Hosseini and Zoe Griffith. Uh, To check out that series, visit our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, where we've got a whole list about almost 20 episodes uh, related to the subject of law in the Ottoman Empire and beyond. Uh, Indeed, this podcast is not really about Islamic law, but it is about legal questions in regions of the Islamic world, particularly under the rule of um, British colonialism. We're going to be taking a comparative look at the cases of Cyprus and Israel uh, and see how British rule uh, classified people and categorized populations through censuses and other practices, uh, and sort of think about uh, some of the uh, legacies of uh, Ottoman legal system and also some of the divergences that occurred during that time. Our guest today on the program is Dr. Yael Berda. She's assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She's also currently an academy scholar at the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies, where we're recording today. Uh, In addition, Yael has background as a lawyer, practicing lawyer, with a long career of experience, and uh, she's a mother of two kids. So, Yael, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here today. Hi. So today's conversation is built upon your ongoing book project, yeah, entitled currently uh, Administrative Memory and Colonial Legacy. Uh, it's an interesting work of, I guess you could say, historical sociology, uh, taking a comparative look at British rule in India, Cyprus, and Mandate Palestine. For our listeners who maybe know the histories of some of these places, we, we can see some shared aspects of the history. All of these places were once under Islamic empires, the Ottomans and the Mughals in the case of uh, India. Um, and in different ways, they've all experienced Types of political partition. Uh, our listeners in Turkey know about the partition of Cyprus. Of course, we have Israel and Palestine, still a very unresolved partition issue. And then, of course, the partition of British India uh, after independence. And as we get into our conversation, we're going to be looking at how uh, British systems of classification and censuses may have played a role in. Uh, giving rise or influencing the outcome of some of uh, the political conflicts we see today in these countries. Um, But before we get into that, let's talk more broadly about the book project and and what you're setting out to do in this work.
1: So my real interest lies in what Max Weber called the Iron Cage. Mm. So I'm really interested in how bureaucracy and administration constrains political change and Mm. prevents it in many ways and and so my major motivation is kind of this we have this big question right when we think about revolutions and liberation and independence and anti-colonial struggle we think oh yes we're just we just have to change the regime and then we'll have freedom autonomy liberty and be able to have control of our lives and and it's a very powerful idea and it, and and yes i mean we mm-hmm. who doesn't believe in that in some way But when you actually look at what happens after regime change, what you see is a lot of continuity, and especially continuity. So the the same people that fought against a certain type of discrimination, against a set of practices that excluded people, that denied them their rights, that denied them participation, Mm -hmm. they go and use those exact same practices to control the population that they've now just liberated. And I find sites where there was partition. So sites that were under multiple imperial rule Mm -hmm. and then went through transition, um, and then sites that went through partition are places where you can really explore these trajectories of of continuity and change. And so that's why um, the choice of of India and Israel and Cyprus. And um, at the time, I didn't realize that I was also choosing uh, to look at the legacies of the Mughal and Ottoman and Ottoman empires. Um, because that's not usually how we think, right? So we don't think, um, in sociology, we don't right. think of, of, of the chronological history of the place. We're thinking more in, in thematic terms. Mm-hmm. But then, um, one of the most interesting discoveries was to actually ask the question not only about the transition from colonial rule to independence mm-hmm. and what legacies the British had left, but what the British Received when mm-hmm. they arrive, absolutely. Yes. And how does that legacy translate, and what happens to it? And so this, um, so I, I'm a sociologist of organizations, mm. and so I'm very, very mm-hmm. interested in adaptation and innovation in diffusion of practices. And empires are wonderful. I, they're wonderful sites to to explore these things, and especially when you have these multiple transitions, you can really take a practice and then start tracing it mm-hmm. and and finding it in its different forms um, under different imperial rule and so that's that's what I do. I'm doing it with a set of practices I call population management uh-huh. which is the way to talk about how states. Classified and categorized population, mm-hmm. and then attached status and material goods mm-hmm. to um, that classification. So it's basically about political membership. But mm-hmm. the reason I call it population management is because you have a lot of people that were that are not members, so that are managed as well. So subjects uh-huh. and yeah. refugees, stateless people who are considered intruders, foreigners, they're also managed. Right. even though they don't have po- political membership and that's why talking about citizenship is kind of talking about, you know, the lucky few. And yeah. so when you talk about population management, you're talking about everybody and what happens to them. Right. And so that's that's um that's basically the project. That idea about continuity between the ruling bodies that existed before colonialism and the the empires themselves is really interesting. How do you think that that formed or partly formed the strategy of divide and rule. It's been blamed for a lot of political fragmentation today. And uh, do you see that relationship between colonialism and contemporary political conflict as beginning in that period? Or do you think this is a longer history? So we'll talk a little bit about what the British find when they arrive in India and Cyprus and, and Mandate Palestine. And um, it's important to talk about this idea of the pre-colonial empires and colonial. It's kind of a strange break to make because even this idea of divide and rule is not like an invention of the British. and just a way to abbreviate a certain aspect of rule when there's a disjuncture between the ruler and the population, and therefore there's not enough knowledge about that population. And so we're back to James Scott, right? Uh, Because the issue of legibility is not born, it's not only an issue of European empires. And actually there's this wonderful work by Osama Magdisi, I think, um, on the Ottomans in Lebanon and stuff like sure. that. And he's really critiquing this idea that, oh, wh- why are you calling this pre-colonial? Because it, it, it's obvious that part of the project, for instance, to uh, colonize Bedouins in, in the Hijaz or in, in Yemen, was to say, oh, let's figure out what makes these, these populations tick. And mm. one of the things that, that, that people didn't want to do was be enumerated by a census? Hmm. They right. feared it for their lives. They were afraid of enumeration, in, and for good reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and what's what's so interesting is so so we could already see that as the Ottomans are trying to create order uh, mm-hmm. by using census, by using data collection, um, they're meeting they're meeting um, a lot of anxiety from the population. Hmm. And so it's very early on. And so when the British meet this anxiety, it's already like an anxiety upon anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a proven anxiety. Right. So it's important to kind of see what the contours were of that rule. And, and and basically, I think that's what I'm most interested in. What are the set of practices that were done? Mm-hmm. How was population categorized? What was the actual category? And so, I, I mean, I look at census schedules and I look at notes of the census commissioner hmm. and how the census commissioner, um, my favorite is, is uh, Mills, who was the census commissioner in Palestine. And he's trying to convince these uh, subcommittees to the census, one Jewish and one mm-hmm. Palestinian mm-hmm. Uh, committee, because he couldn't get them to sit th- together uh, in a committee um, to advise him on the census. And they're very worried about enumerating the Bedouins. Everybody's always worried about the Bedouins. Um, that's part of, I think, <laughs> part of, and, and we know why, right? We, yeah. we know why empires um, are, are fearful of the Bedouins and nomadic people. It's because they move around yeah. and then you can't track them. And that's a security problem. Mm. Movement was a security problem very, very early on. And the Bedouins represented um, that, that kind of problem. And it didn't matter where they were. so nomad, So basically nomadic tribes, no matter if they were. In India, or, uh-huh. or in, uh, or in um, yeah, the Nakab. and so, for instance, Mills said, "How does he calm?" Uh, this is very late on. This is like nineteen yep. thirties Mandate Palestine. How is he calming down uh, the the anxiety over the enumeration of the Bedouins? And they say we have developed very good methods, methods that we have e- that we even that even were used by the rulers uh, that were that were before um yep. the east india company to enumerate nomadic tribes so there's these so it's a, it basically he's talking about the scientific method to enumerate mm-hmm. moving populations and and then he says you know this is not some method that was used in europe it was actually used in a place that is very similar to here and so there's this kind of um this this uh, this colonial official, this British colonial official, that is saying, "Hey, we're kind of using, we're basically using Mughal methods to enumerate nomadic populations, yeah. and these are time-tested um, methods, and that's why you shouldn't worry about it." And I found, you know, it's it's such a it's such a strange kind of thing to say, considering that for so long the British colonial administration used to call the pre-colonial empires backward. And their methods were backward. And so suddenly, but when you're looking for legitimacy and comparison, then suddenly that becomes something that you pull out of your hat.
0: And certainly this this is a big theme in the history of South Asia, but also if we think about the Ottoman case and sort of go back to what you said at the beginning of that answer... You know, the Ottomans during the 19th century are almost importing these technologies of colonial rule and really adapting their own administrative system. So to say that, oh, this is the way it's always been done here. In many cases, the British were mimicking policies that were only decades old and were probably inspired by some Ottoman bureaucrats reading of British, um, you Hmm. know, policies in South Asia or any any number of uh, possible, uh, you know, uh, sources of inspiration
1: yeah um I was just re- recently there was this fantastic conference on imperial comparisons in Oxford, and one of the things that we enjoyed um seeing in each other's work I mean most were historians, and I was like the only sociologist but um we enjoyed seeing the way practices are they're localized mm-hmm. right so they're they're used even if they're borrowed or they mm-hmm. diffuse from other places, then they're localized and adapted. And that's an innovation in itself. So if I'm sure. using a practice from a different place, but I'm making it local, I'm already changing it and adapting it. And then when I re-export that practice, it is no longer the practice I received. Mm-hmm. And so and so, it's kind of a funny thing to say, oh, no, this is not from here. Mm-hmm. Well, it is at this point. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the question is, what exactly... And, and how much do origins of practices matter? And I think that's, like, it's a very big question for us, right? right? Because we're trying to figure out legacies and influences and how, and we're very interested in, like, the origins of, especially um, um, legal scholars, like the origins of laws mm-hmm. and, like, people that believe, I mean, there's, there's, there's scholars in comparative law that, that think that legal families or the legal origins are basically the most mm-hmm. important part of a law and That they reflect the possibility of a law to be relevant to a different place, and when you actually look at the history of administrative practice because that's different than law, you see that there's a lot more um, movement there and there's a lot more adaptation and so and also the way there's the politics of justifying using something from elsewhere yeah and that and that politics of justification in itself changes constantly mm-hmm. with the conditions that you're talking about so for instance, if I'm going to use a practice that is then being contested. I say, hey, I'm not doing anything new. This is the, the British, right? you know. We're not changing the, 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 the Millet system. That, that we're yeah. keeping the Millet system in Palestine or in Cyprus. We haven't done it. That was here before. <laughs> we're just organizing it. Mm-hmm. And by that organization, mm-hmm. many times, they would take um, categories that were fluid. That kind of drew fuzzy boundaries around yeah. communities where the exit and entry was was right. was easy, was possible, right. and then those boundaries solidify, and identity becomes something that you know is is basically determining your life chances right. <laughs> in many in many, many many ways. Your access to material goods, sure. your access to licenses, to professional training, um, to travel, and so. That change, just solidifying a boundary that already sure. existed and was porous, that is a, is a, is a massive change.
0: And it's a completely, the, the way the British are using it is completely different than maybe how the Ottomans were using it a century before, where the Millet system is actually sort of empowering uh, religious communities to have, like, self-autonomy in certain realms of, of governance uh, under, like, sort of an, an equal but pluralistic system. That's very different than saying, let's categorize all these people so that we can then control them. That's something that only happens very late in the Ottoman period under the Millet system. So even there, you have sort of these... Uh, waves of transformation welcome back to ottoman history podcast chris grayton and shireen hamza here talking with the about her research on population management uh, under british rule in both cyprus uh, and mandate palestine I want to remind our listeners that we have a number of episodes related to both of those countries. We've never done a comparative look, but we've got some episodes on Cyprus, Ottoman Cyprus with Andonis Hajikiriaku. Uh, And one on uh, provincial history of the Ottoman Empire with Mark Ames during the 19th century, also on Cyprus. Uh, Likewise, we have a number of uh, episodes uh, on the history of Mandate Palestine and modern Israel. Um, Maybe most relevant to the discussion is our interview with Lauren Banco about uh, citizenship in Mandate Palestine. And of course, our interview with uh, Shira Robinson uh, on the very early uh, years of, of the history of the state of Israel. So, yeah, as we've been saying, the British inherit systems of uh, differentiated rule, imperial systems somehow similar to what they would uh, later adopt. But also those systems were undergoing various forms of change under the Ottoman Empire and, of course, the Mughals in India. We're going to leave the Indian case aside and focus on uh, the cases of Cyprus and mandate Palestine. So uh, like e- for our listeners, um, like Egypt and Sudan, Cyprus is subjected to de facto British rule after the Russo-Ottoman War in 1878, uh, formally becomes a British possession in 1914. Uh, Palestine uh, becomes a British mandate after the First World War when the Ottoman Empire is defeated, and that empire is partitioned, I guess we could use the term that we're using in the podcast today. Uh, so Cyprus and Palestine come under British rule in somewhat different periods. Therefore, we should expect that the practices, both that were in place before they arrive and that were adopted after are not entirely the same. Hmm. so let's get into the comparison.
1: so I, I want to talk first a little bit about the Ottoman census, and I want to talk about it because I think that um, that what we see afterwards, the changes that we see afterwards have to do with the different reasons that that um, the British and mm-hmm. the, the the Ottomans and the British the different reasons they had for doing census and using census. Mm -hmm. So basically for the Ottomans, the census was uh, the way to define taxpayers and those who would be drafted into the military. Mm -hmm. And of course, at least at the early stages. So, so Muslims are the only ones that are drafted into the military. And then the taxpayer issue becomes much more important in terms of classifying people into their millets. Now, the most interesting thing that, that the British do in Palestine, and we'll get there soon, is that they make a Muslim millet, so, which didn't exist at all. The millets were for the non-Muslims. And so even having, um, using a, a, a mm-hmm. category that was the category of the other, right. um, to, to, and including um, the category of ruler mm-hmm. in that way, shifts, just shifts the use of, of what millet meant. And then millet stops meaning those that are not part of the conscription, but are part of of the tax paying subjects Mm -hmm. into basically religious communities that are defined by religion. And now I'm gonna come back to Cyprus. And so Mm -hmm. so at the the beginning of the census, the religious definitions are the most important because they stem from the millet. I mean, the Mm -hmm. idea is it's your religious life, this is your identity, and it's also the leadership, religious leadership. Um, that many times was also converged right. with the political leadership mm-hmm. of the community. They were the people that organized their community with with much autonomy, although not as much as we would like to think about what the millet system enabled. I think what we see is that the religious definition starts to change, and there's a lot of um, discussion with with within the British officialdom on the role of language, the role of religion, and Mm -hmm. the role of race. Now the way they use race, it's kind of like an all-encompassing category. Sometimes it looks like it means ethnicity, sometimes it means national affiliation, what we would call later national affiliations, but it includes a lot of things. And so gradually what begins to happen is that while the earliest censuses are you have the first column, which is religion, and that's your major column. And then there's all kinds of other uh, characteristics, like your profession and your region, and do you have a family, and then your language. So by the next census, you have religion next to language. Many of these regions were multilingual. Um, So what did they, have you been able to puzzle out what they had in mind by language? So what's so interesting is that in Cyprus, you had Greeks, uh, Greek Orthodox and Muslims mm-hmm. who were Turkish Muslims, but they were they were Ottoman Muslims in yeah. that sense. I mean, they were not, they spoke Turkish, but they were what Rebecca Bryant calls a leftover community. So they were mm-hmm. a leftover community from, from the Ottoman Empire. So, yes, they spoke Turkish, but... Were they Turkish? this is a whole other other issue. Um, I, I can I can already see the the uh, people fuming at the other end of the podcast. Um, because I'm not indicating that that they that the Turkish Cypriots were not Turkish. I'm just saying that that they were part of the Ottoman Empire and they stayed in Cyprus. what What happens is that the British classify them as Muslims who speak Turkish, mm-hmm. whereas Greek Orthodox, Spoke Greek, and the most interesting thing that the British do, and there's a lot of work on this. Um, Costas Konstantinou writes about um, the laws of minorities. Andreykos Varnava wrote about uh, minorities in Cyprus. But what the British do is they start lumping this category into Greek. By 1946, you mm-hmm. have Greeks and Turks. Mm. It's Greek and Turkish, and other. And I mean, you have like 18, 19 other minorities I and they're lumped mm. into the category other, no matter what they speak, no matter what they do. And basically, and there's this wonderful quote, uh, Costas Constantino, he writes, um, so in, in Cyprus, basically, you had to have a hyphenated identity. There was no possibility. It was binary and hyphenated. You could be Turkish Cypriot, Greek, Cypriot, right. nothing else. Hmm. Or other. What are you going to do with that other category? Yep. There's nothing that you can right. do about it. And, and it had very, very stark implications for legal rights, for Maronites needing to go to Lebanon to get mm-hmm. married or divorced. Mm-hmm. I mean, for access to land, licensing, for professional training to get into the civil service. I mean... It's funny. I mean, we think of census schedules as these very boring forms in which, you know, yeah. people are just replicating these, these very mundane details of their lives. <laughs> it shaped everything, it right. shaped their trajectories of their life. And so, and so, um, and definitely the creating the binary, which was something the British were very, very good at. They, mm. they were very good at creating the binary. They do the same thing in Palestine um, and where, in India. And in India but but in but in Cyprus and in Palestine because um these are small places having the binary category, they couldn't do binary I mean they mm. they tried very hard to make categories binary in India it still it worked only at an all India level it never worked at the state level it never worked at a regional level yeah. I mean it was not a possible thing binary is not a possibility in that in that in that and that that was part of you know, their constant anxiety, angst, and, and their need to innovate in India. But you could do it in Cyprus, and you could do it in Palestine, right. with with very, very extreme consequences that we see till today. Mm-hmm. And so I think what happens in Palestine, and this happens later, mm-hmm. um, is that they're taking, I don't know if they're taking the Cyprus model, because there's no evidence of, of that, of a specific diffusion mm-hmm. of census practices, yep. and I looked, but... At the beginning, they're using again. They create a Muslim millet, yeah, and they're using the millets first of all to grant autonomy regarding personal religious law. That that was the first thing. Okay. So Jewish Jews, Christians, and Muslims had different religious law, yeah, and they could go to their religious courts, and that was the basic function of the millets. Mm-hmm. What happens a little later is that they decide on a self on a self defining category of arab or jew and there's the the census um, there's the instructions to the enumerators in which they're told you need to ask the person how they define themselves and it's a, it then and so there's this binary binary category but it is of subjective yeah. identity and so it you just it just becomes arab versus jew uh, and this is the way they also write it they write mm-hmm. verses hmm. so it, you have a statistical table that is just writing the numbers of something hmm. um how many landowners you have and then you have arab's number versus <laughs> jews and you're just like why is it written in this way That's, <laughs> I, I mean you it's can hilarious. see how that
0: portends a uh, conflict
1: it doesn't create the conflict But it does exacerbate it. It does solidify it. It Mm. makes it
0: inevitable. I mean, to back it up a little bit for our listeners, so we described this uh, process, uh, the British inherit uh, Ottoman rule and uh, categories in Cyprus. Um, They change them in sort of significant ways. For example, creating a Muslim millet, whereas before Muslims were just under the rule of the Ottoman state and no other like, ecclesiastical institution. There's no such thing uh, in the mm-hmm. Ottoman Empire for Muslims. And then those categories in turn that are created, Muslim and Christian, uh, become collapsed into ethno-linguistic categories as well that become essentially races that are these uh, packages that actually can't overlap. Even though we know in the Ottoman Mediterranean there were Muslims that spoke Greek, Greeks that spoke Turkish, all that goes out the window with the British. Uh, in Palestine, you're saying we see a very similar process that uh the british inherit a communal system of let's say religious pluralism uh from under the ottomans and those categories also are transformed in the same way
1: and what's so interesting is that actually the jewish establishment wanted to keep the religious categories it was beneficial for for um for for um, the Zionist institutions to be able to differentiate between Christian Arabs and Muslim mm, and, and Muslim Arabs, for political reasons, but also for um, reasons of quotas in the civil service, hmm. mm. because they could say, "Look, you have this many Muslims and this many Christians, and you should have this." It just allowed for more having more quotas, <sighs> and they really, I mean, there's letters of them begging to have the religious category. Um, be be this the, the the statistical category, and and it just they didn't get their point across, and so you had that, the binary of the Arab and Jew, while the the Zionist institutions kept keeping mm-hmm. the statistic of the the religious communities, which is a very interesting uh, way to see it. When we in Cyprus, the Turkish Cypriot minority really embraced the ethno linguistic um, mm-hmm. category, and one of the reasons was that. When you're a minority that fears annihilation, and you're trying to build a collective identity, and build institutions that are mm-hmm. kind of sovereign-like or will grant you more autonomy, having that official identity mm-hmm. is actually useful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so, and so we can see that the interests sometimes were for and against. And and so it's not you can't just um, say, oh, this was just a method of oppression and control. It was not. It was this constant negotiation of interests in Mm. which there was this view of modernization. So we're gonna modernize these backward communities that Mm -hmm. have these fuzzy boundaries and we're gonna do order. Yeah. And I mean, there's very much the governmentality aspect of being interested in the demographics. Yeah. So really, the interest in the de- demographics, that's the big change that happens. Yeah. And, that's, and that's an overarching change. But within it, you have the, the political negotiation around those categories. And it's pretty, it's, it's amazing uh, to see how lively hmm. these campaigns were, the campaigns not to be enumerated in the census. Mm-hmm. So um, the Zionist establishment in Palestine, 1931, they're putting out these pamphlets saying, don't cooperate with the British. This wow. is a scientific way to bring to our demise, hmm. uh, to the, bring the demise of the I mean, it's like really steep. The census itself, and also in Cyprus, of course, in India, there were strikes and heart around yeah. the issue of, of, of census categories. So, so something that we really see as this very bureaucratic form it's so boring. I mean, just you know, you look at 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 the at the forms themselves, and you know, thousands of them, and you're just like, mm-hmm. what can this tell us? And it tells an, an incredible political story of kind of the management of identity and and also the solidification of it to the extent where it becomes mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. and that's you know it's it's a it's an it's it's a pretty incredible story where you have like these boundaries that begin as these thin paper boundaries um and then really solidify into different countries different states and make people foreigners and enemies and so i find that interesting
0: Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Shireen Hamza here speaking with Yal Berda. Uh, for a bibliography related to this podcast, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Uh, on the website and on the page for this particular episode, you'll also find a, a very interesting image. It's, a, it's entitled Map of Cyprus, and it's from the year 1960, so it's a later period of British rule in Cyprus. Uh, and what it essentially does is show the breakdown of land ownership uh, in Cyprus, And what we see on the map is that the races are indeed classified, of course, Greek, Turkish, and other, just like you said, Yael. So we've been talking about how British um, uh, practices of classification and indeed, I guess, division of uh, the population into different groups um, foreshadows uh, certain uh, political outcomes of partitions. Uh, And one of the categories that emerges... With time, as the British are in both Cyprus, Palestine, and many other parts of the world, is this category of race. So let's talk more about how the British uh, use the word race, because um, you know, race means many different things in many different contact contexts. As you said, it's not always a biological thing, as it's sometimes uh, used in, uh, but rather can can mean a nation. Or so, why don't you uh, flesh that out for us a little bit?
1: So one of the things that I found most interesting was one of the census superintendents wrote. Uh, in 1931. So he writes this about Malaya, but then it gets quoted regarding Cyprus um, by another official. And he writes, the term race is used in a particular sense for lack of a more appropriate term to cover a complex set of ideas of which race in the strict scientific sense is only a small element. Now, remember, this is an official. He's not Mm An academic Mm -hmm. i mean this so look at this word but but, and and it continues the term race is used for census purposes a judicious blend for practical ends of the ideas of geographic and ethnographic origin political allegiance and racial and social affinities Mm -hmm. so it's very obvious that it's covering a whole range of things yeah and so and you see what you see in this map is 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 actually something that is pretty interesting because it's basically telling us that I mean you have this narrative that I talked about before in which yeah. the British view Turk Turkish and Greek Cypriots as ethno-national categories. Um so but if they're viewing them as an ethno-national category how come they continue to refer to to them as there's Greeks and, Syp- and Turkish, and that's a division of race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think this quote explains to us why what you see mm-hmm. on that map is a division between races. Um, but what what that category does is if you're being called a race, then possibly as a community you might think that the differences are not only linguistic differences or not only religious differences. They might also harbor other kind of Um, biological differences that race implies. And so...
0: Well, I mean, what the quote is basically acknowledging is that, look, we're using race as a social construct with all of these things that are actually maybe not... that that we aggregate for practical purposes, but this is not a biological definition of race in the sense that it's hereditary, but actually, the way they're using it, it kind of is hereditary, right? It kind of fixes all of these things on a person, all of these attributes uh, right down to, you know... the. The very notion that what their race is, quote unquote, would uh, be relevant for for classifying property ownership. Exactly. So, yeah, we've been talking throughout the podcast about um, classification of peoples uh, and the violence that it may engender either... You know, intentionally, but often unintentionally, but the consequences basically, uh, and indeed foreshadowing the legacies of British population management in different colonial settings. Uh, I guess to conclude the podcast, I'll ask one more question. We'll do the same thing (laughs) to colonial states that that the British were doing to their peoples. Let's classify them a little bit because we are doing this comparative look. We've seen a lot of similarities between uh, Cyprus and Palestine, and I think. To this comparative perspective, one of the interesting things we find is that actually states that lived under colonial regimes experienced very different things. I think that Lebanon is a great example of a place where um, the creation of this category of race, uh, you know, Arab, non-Arab and all this stuff did not become a meaningful political category. Other uh, communal boundaries uh, became relevant in the case of Lebanon, a a country that shares a border with uh, Israel-Palestine.
1: Although I would have to jump in there and say that I think that there's very different legacies from, from the British colonial um, administrations and from French colonial administrations. Right. And actually, exactly. those are the kind of things that we can, we can trace legacies and say, there's this big difference in the way mm-hmm. people perceive their um, official and non-official identities. And some of them have the roots in these, in the in the way they were administered by the colonial power during the mandate period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and again, to to get to our earlier point, even before, of course, Lebanon has an exceptional governing status in the Ottoman Empire as early as 1860, and so we see these layers. of uh, you know, treating empires' strategies and practices as monolithic is especially problematic when we consider the diachronic aspect. Um, so, bearing all of these things in mind, let's let's talk about the legacies. Uh, of British population, uh, management policies and practices, uh, in Cyprus and, uh, Israel.
1: So one of the interesting things is, um, in my work, I actually found, uh, an incredible similarity between Israel and India, and both had established after, um, partition, uh, an independence or the n- not partition and the Nakba in, in, in uh, in Israel, Palestine. Um, What you had there was um, your classification became an issue of entry and mobility. So there were these permit systems that were established that prevented um, Muslims from entering, um, from re-entering India Mm -hmm. if they had fled Pakistan, or re-entering Israel if they had if they had uh, fled to to Jordan. And in both places, there's very, very similar um, permit systems that were that were put in place mm-hmm. during the very early years that that were before the citizenship laws. Mm. Now in Cyprus, this doesn't happen, and um, it's a fascinating thing to 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 really see how you have very similar trajectories, and then there's a, one different variable. And the difference was that in India and Israel, um, coupled with these. Um, these census practices and categorization practices, there were also a set of emergency laws in place. And Cyprus uh, did not continue the British emergency laws. And so even though it had this toolkit for managing population, it did not have um, the legal legitimacy to, um, to force population and prevent mobility Mm-hmm. Uh, through emergency laws, and and that's that's basically what I found that you can have similar trajectories on on one end, mm-hmm. but then there's there's this play between law and administrative practice, and it's a very important one. And so you can't really say, oh, the legal continuity isn't important; it's just about bureaucracy, or you can't say, oh, the bureaucracy is isn't important. It, this is just about the types of laws. It's really the interplay between them, and. That's exactly where where um, political and civil rights get eroded, where there's this coupling between mm. strong executive power of the state and the set of practices that allow for this um, this, this classificatory regime mm. that excludes people from their rights. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's kind of um, a lesson where where this coupling of 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 the bureaucratic toolkit. With the legal power to exclude people from rights, that's that's exactly where you find the pockets of, of statelessness of, of people being treated as intruders and kind of left out of the state.
0: So yeah, in addition to being an academic, you're also a lawyer, with, and, and uh, you you teach and work uh, in Israel today, uh, and and both in Cyprus and in in Israel, we have these unresolved uh, conflicts that. We are saying in this podcast are at least in part um, uh, the legacy of um, system, systems put in place under the British. Uh, and so in thinking about um, the question of legacy, not only for post-independent states that were ruled by the British, but also for our present political context. I'm, I'm wondering how you see uh, the implications of some of the findings you've had in this comparative study.
1: So, of course, I didn't study too until these contemporary times but what i can say is i think that any solution to these conflicts that are very much about dispossession not only of land but also of status rights mm-hmm. political participation possibility for mobility i mean definitely in israel palestine everything is about mobility um and the possibility to move uh, or possibly immobility um a- any solution to the conflict involves dismantling the racial hierarchies that became embedded in the administration i mean mm. th- that's the thing you can't You can't use um administrative practices without y- using the political presump assumptions that were that made them be mm. and so we have to decolonize these administrations, decolonize the classifications. Um, for any solution to go forward, it doesn't matter if you are a, for two-state solution, a one-state solution, mm-hmm. or like me, for a confederation. Um, anything first of all, people have to have universal status with equal rights, and then you can, you need you, which means dismantling the current classific, classificatory regime. Mm. There's no way around it. Well, thank you, Yao, for that. Uh- succinct and direct (laughs) uh, conclusion
0: regarding the implications of your work. And uh, we do look forward to the release of your book. I know that it's very much in in the heat of the production process. And uh, uh, we wish you the best of luck uh, with uh, finishing up uh, uh, the writing and uh, publication. And and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. For those who are listening and want to find out more about today's topic, we've got a bibliography on our website, uh, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, which also provides a space to leave your comments and questions. Uh, as we mentioned before, there's a number of episodes on our site related not only to both uh, uh, Cyprus and Israel-Palestine, uh, but also some of the thematic questions we've been talking about in terms of uh, imperial legacies, uh, citizenship, uh, and of course, law. I want to also invite our listeners to find us on Facebook uh, and communicate with our Facebook community if you aren't already doing so. We've got over 25,000 fans on Facebook, so there's a lot of people commenting and and sharing the content. And indeed, Facebook is a great way to keep up with not only our future episodes, but also other content from our site and from our partners uh, that we share on the page. That's all for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Join us next time. And until then, take care.